chapter 42. If you will turn with me there. Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Father, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Dear Lord, I pray that this morning you will use this time to reveal yourself anew to each one of us, to open your uh, Holy Scripture to our hearts and our heads, And that you would use your servant Paul mightily to um, bring forth the, the words and the message that you have placed upon his heart. So God, use him mightily, spend him for your glory. And I pray that you would give him passion and clarity in his thought and his words. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well... We're actually, although I've gone back to the book of Isaiah, we were all the way to Zephaniah, weren't we? So we passed Isaiah, but I've gone back to Isaiah, and this was purposeful because um, there is something in chapter 42, and also it's it's uh, it's kind of got a companion passage in Isaiah 49 which I think is really important and which years ago opened my eyes uh, to an incredible truth, I think, uh, which led me to an exploration of uh, the Bible in a new way um, for over many years, actually. And this, uh, I'd read this many, many, many times before, but for some reason... I hadn't, it hadn't clicked. I just read it. But look at verse six. Verse six. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. Now, what I want to call your attention to are those words, I will give you as a covenant to the people. Um, I don't know how many times I'd read that 
passage, and you see the same thing in Isaiah 49.8. And it just, I don't know, it didn't register for some reason. I thought, well, yes, I recognize this, and I know it's quoted in the New Testament. So uh, for some reason it just didn't, uh, it didn't infiltrate (laughs) the whole, uh, my mind in the way that it should have done. But it's an extraordinary thing to say. This servant who is spoken of in uh, the beginning of chapter 42, and this is uh, the second of uh, several servant songs in the latter part of Isaiah. Um, this servant is the Messiah. This servant is not Israel. Now, sometimes the servant songs speak of Israel as the servant. But in 42 and also in 49 and also in 53, more famously in that passage, the servant is Messiah, the coming one. So this passage appears to be telling us something rather special that the Messiah, the Christ, who is to come, is to be made by God as a covenant to the people. And uh, we'll get to this in in the third part of this sermon. But I just want to put it out there for you so that it registers, so that we, uh, we don't have to kind of reconsider it once we get to the passage. And perhaps you will think about this as we go through uh, the verses that come before it. So back to verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, believe it or not, some interpreters believe that the servant in chapter 42 is Israel. Even some conservative uh, interpreters believe this is not a messianic prophecy. This is not a prophecy of Christ. It's actually just talking about the nation of Israel. Um, even messianic Jews do this, perhaps because in the over, uh, overzealousness to see Israel prophetically, they're reading Israel into this passage, and they're not seeing that this passage is not about Israel as a nation. It's about the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And we can easily see this in a number of ways by just looking at the, at the passage. First of all, uh, the emphasis here in verse 1 on on the spirit. I have put my spirit upon him. Now, certainly in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, and other places, the spirit is to be poured upon the nation of Israel. Later on in Isaiah, there's a passage that speaks about that also. But in Isaiah chapter 11, which is a passage we've already seen, the branch, remember the branch? Another messianic uh, metaphor. The spirit is upon him. In fact, let's 
quickly flip over there so you can see this for yourselves and remind yourselves. Isaiah 11, it says, There shall come forth a a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch that shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. you remember that passage? I preached on it, what, a few weeks ago, okay? I know it was a few weeks ago, and uh, I'm not as vain enough to think that you remember everything that I preach about, but we did preach on that. So, uh, this one in in, uh, chapter 42, verse 1, is probably the one that was already spoken of in chapter 11, the one to whom the Spirit is going to come. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Okay, again, that uh, fits in with what is spoken about about Christ in Isaiah 2, in Isaiah 11, in Isaiah 9. He's going to bring justice to the world. Israel, the nation of Israel, is not in a state to bring justice to anybody else. Because they're just as unjust as everybody else. Are they? Are they? They still have a problem. They need justice being brought to them. And so this certainly is not the nation of Israel. But I think the thing that really seals it for us are the next couple of verses. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and the smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Now, in case you're wondering, because you're probably thinking, well, look, it says he. The pronoun says he there, not they, okay, or Israel. But you see, in the Hebrew, you can... You can uh, translate it in different ways, so it's not decisive in the Hebrew. You have to make an interpretive decision, okay? But why should this be translated he? Well, because this passage you might recognize from the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 12, which I'll ask you to turn to now, this passage is quoted in that Gospel, Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 15, and we'll read down from here. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen... So there you are, you see he's applying, Matthew's applying this passage to Christ. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And then uh, this is uh, from the Septuagint, and in him, his name, Gentiles will trust. And what that is is a summing up of what happens next 
in Isaiah 42. So, um, if Matthew looks at Isaiah 42 and says, ah, that's talking about Christ, I don't know why there are interpreters of the Bible who say it's not talking about Christ, it's talking about Israel. Surely this one nails it down for us, doesn't it? This is the proof that we want. The Old, the Old Testament is cited in the New Testament and applied directly as a prophetic fulfillment of Jesus Christ. So, what we have in chapter 42 are references to the coming of Christ. But, we have references both to the first coming and to the second coming of Christ in this passage, as we often do in the prophecies of Messiah in the Old Testament. One of the things that you've got to do when you read in the Old Testament and you come across a passage that speaks about Christ, that is a prophecy, you have to pick apart, oh, that's first coming, that's second coming. Okay? Because the work of Jesus Christ is one work in two phases. One work in two phases. This is very important to remember. If you don't, if you don't do that in your interpretation, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to apply second coming prophecies to the first coming of Christ. And when you do that, you're going to have to spiritualize them because they don't fit. For example, if we say that Jesus' first coming uh, fulfills all of this passage in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 8, then, well, uh, as he, has he brought forth justice to the nations? No. He certainly hasn't. There's been a great deal of injustice in the nations ever since this prophecy was uttered. And so there are several things in this passage that have to apply to the second coming, and we'll look at those uh, as we move on. But let's look at the first coming references, shall we? Verse 2, he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Well, Jesus did on occasion, cry out. On occasion, he raised his voice because you can't speak to a multitude of people, like 5,000 people, okay, unless you up the volume a bit, okay? But there are certain places in, uh, in Israel where you have a natural kind of an amphitheater, okay, where a person who knows how to speak well doesn't have to shout, they just have to speak well and articulate well, and their voice can be heard by many people. And certainly, uh, Jesus would have been able to do that. So yes, he did raise up his voice, but the idea here is not that he didn't shout occasionally, raise his voice occasionally. The idea is that he didn't call attention to himself by, you know, being a loud kind of a person. Jesus very often actually shunned uh, popularity. In fact, the passage in Matthew 12 is all about that. They wanted, they were clamoring, you see, around him. They wanted to make him king. They wanted to 
to hoist him on high and uh, proclaim him as the Messiah, and he didn't want that. He didn't want the crowd, the crowd's acclaim, not like somebody who would raise his voice and, and uh, self-publish. So that's certainly a, a first coming uh, prophetic fulfillment. What about verse 3? A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Well, this certainly is a first coming fulfillment as well. Jesus was very gentle. He was very uh, caring in the way that he dealt with sinners. Think about the woman taking, taken uh, in adultery in the book of John. Many people would have condemned her. Many people would have looked down their noses at her. What about the woman at the well also in John? Again, many people would have condemned her. In fact, the Pharisees wanted to condemn her, don't, didn't they? They wanted to, uh, to, to, uh, her to be dealt with. So Jesus, very caring, very pa- uh, compassionate in the way that he approached people. And Jesus approached two people, people who were sinners, people who were wayward, people who were outcasts like the lepers and so on, and the uh, the publicans. These kinds of people were drawn to him because of his kindness, because of his willingness to forgive their sins. And as such, they represent us. We know that if we come to Jesus, he's not going to turn us away with a frown. Jesus is not going to be angry with us when we come to him. Yes, we've messed up. Yes, we have sinned. Yes, we may have hurt ourselves or other people. But the key that Jesus wants to see in us is that we recognize what we've done. We are sorry for what we've done. And we turn from that to him, confessing that. We may feel that we're a a light just about to go out. We may uh, look at ourselves as a bruised reed, as it were. Something that's broken, no good. But we can come to Jesus and he commend us. He's not going to despise us. This is the idea that's carried in verse 3. It was true when he came 2,000 years ago, and it's true right now. It's true today for you. You can come to Jesus. It doesn't matter in what state you come. Just come. Just come. You know, there are teachings by well-meaning Christians that say, you've got to sort yourself out before you come to Jesus. Okay, you've got to make sure he's the Lord of everything before you come to him. That's nonsense. Don't put an obstacle in the way of you coming to Jesus. Just come. Do you think Jesus is is impressed? Jesus can see your heart. Jesus can read your mind. Jesus can see the whole of your life. He can even see your future. 
Do you think he's impressed just because you do yourself up a little bit to present yourself to him? He's not looking at that. He's looking at your motive. He's looking at the fact that you recognize that you have problems, you have sin, you have something that only he can fix. Maybe you just feel beaten down. Maybe you just feel at the end of your rope. Well, you come to him, you see. You don't try and sort yourself out. And you don't go to him just for a little bit of of nice advice. You come to him because you are helpless. And you need help. And you know he won't turn you away. You know he won't despise you. This is wonderfully fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. Also in verse 7, which is directly applied in uh, Matthew 12, he came to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison. Not completely. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. But Jesus did come to bring Uh, to open the eyes of the blind. Nobody had ever done that. Nobody had ever done that. You read through the Old Testament. Elijah never did it. Elisha never did it. Only Jesus has been able to do that. And Jesus healed many, many blind people. So this was, this is the first coming that he's talking about. But this passage is not just the first coming, you see. It's not just the first coming. We have the second coming passages jammed in with them. And before we get to those, I'm going to go to this all-important text in verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. So this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. I, the Lord, Yahweh, have called you, Messiah, in Righteousness. I will hold your hand because what Christ has to do is not easy. What he has to do in order to, um, to comfort us, in order to redeem us, to save us, is to shed his blood for us, is to become, uh, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, is to be humiliated, the Son of God as a nobody, as it were, before Pilate, crucified as a common criminal. And so, yes, God was with him through all of this. Remember, they they cried to him on the cross, if God's with you, come down off the cross. No, God was with him on the cross. He couldn't come down because God was with him there, you see. We need to understand the wisdom of God and we need to understand the uh, the distance to which God is willing to go to procure your soul and my soul for eternal bliss. I will keep you. And give you as a covenant to the people. Now, let's have a look at the covenants. Let's remember 
what the covenants are. They're listed, listed right up here, okay? So there's the Noahic covenant. What's that one got to do with? Come on, this is audience participation time now. Come on. What's the Noahic covenant got to do with? No more floods of the earth. No more universal flood, okay? Uh, is there anybody here that believes that God's going to flood the entire earth again? Why not? Because he's made a covenant to do that, yes? Okay, covenants are to be taken literally, all right? Okay, the Abrahamic covenant, this is a bit of a test. There are three aspects to the Abrahamic covenant. One of them's got to do with the land, good, given to the descendants, that's good, and then through them all the, this is the third part, what about us, if we were not Jews? Eh? The Gentiles, yeah, through the third part of the Abrahamic covenant, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay? That's where we become part of that Abrahamic covenant, uh, not for the land covenant, but part of the blessing there, as uh, Paul brings out in Galatians 3. Mosaic Covenant, you know what that's about. Yes, that's about the law. Okay? And then the priestly covenant, that's a forgotten covenant, which you've probably forgotten about. But what is it? Does anybody remember what the priestly covenant's about? Not David. No, that's the one coming up. It's Phineas. Okay? Phineas, you know, with the, the guy with the javelin. Okay? Numbers 25. Okay. And then the Davidic covenant, that's for David, and that's to have a king on the throne of Israel in Jerusalem. And this king also from other prophecies that will rule the earth from Jerusalem. Okay, those are the covenants. Now, they're made with people, and people are um, the subjects of them, yes. They go out and affect other people too. But none of these people, Noah's not a covenant, Abraham's not a covenant, Moses isn't a covenant, Phineas isn't a covenant, and David's not a covenant. So what is Isaiah doing here? Saying that the Messiah is going to be made as a covenant. What's different about Christ? Of course, Christ and Messiah, it's the same thing. It just means anointed. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. What, uh, what's different about him? What makes him different then? Come on, think about this. He's a sacrifice, that's right. He's the sacrifice. It's not that somebody, something else is the sacrifice. It's not that the lamb is a sacrifice. It's that the very person, okay, that the covenant is about, he's the sacrificial animal. He's the lamb of God. Do you see that? So that's why he's the covenant. He's the covenant-making animal, as it were, who gives his blood to ratify the covenant, but he's also the one who makes and initiates the covenant. Okay? That's why this is my blood of the new covenant. Yes? Which we take every time we we do communion. Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, is also called the mediator of the new covenant. You can't get around it, folks. The new covenant is all about Jesus. He's the covenant. 
Do you see? He's the covenant. You don't get salvation by going around Jesus. Okay? You get salvation by going through Jesus. Even the Old Testament saints, they were saved in view of the sacrifice of Christ. Do you see? And ever since Jesus' first coming, you have to believe in him, in his sacrifice, in the cross, in his resurrection from the dead, in order to have forgiveness and eternal life. He is the covenant. Which means we need to focus, when we read in the Bible, more on covenants than we are um, used to. This passage opened it up to me. Like, wow, he is, he's the covenant? How is he the covenant? And then I started bringing all of these texts in and I started to realize, okay, it, the covenant is not something that's external from Jesus. The covenant is Jesus. Do you see? So he gets the glory, folks. You start to, instead of something that's aside from him, it's something that is him. It's an extraordinary truth. So, we have first coming references. We have this extraordinary covenant passage in verse 6, and it's repeated, as I said, in chapter 49, verse 8. And then you have these second coming references which are kind of thrown in there as well, which you have to kind of pass out. Let's have a look at some of those. Verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. That's all first coming. And then there's this. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Well, he hasn't done yet. So you're faced with, again, an interpretive choice here. You're faced with, okay, we can spiritualize this and say nice, sweet, sugary things about this, okay? Which we know that aren't really true, but they sound good, okay? Like, oh, how has Jesus brought justice? Well, just if we just follow the Sermon on the Mount, for example, and his teachings, then there'll be justice, okay? Yeah, that's true, but we don't. Do you see? And it doesn't say we're going to be the ones who bring forth justice by, by believing what Jesus said. It says he's going to bring it. Do you see? And when Jesus comes the second time, it's not us waking up and saying, oh, well, we should have believed him all along and we should, you know, let's just sort ourselves out now and believe everything he says from now on. No, he's going to bring it by his presence. Do you see? He's the prince of peace. He's the one who rules and he's going to bring forth justice. That's the second coming passage. You say, well, it's mixed in with the first coming passages. Yes, because in the Old Testament, the first and second comings are not differentiated. People in the Old Testament didn't know anything about this weird thing called the church. 
Okay? The first indication of the church is in Matthew chapter 16 in Jesus' words to Peter. Yes? Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the first mention. And the church didn't even start until Acts chapter 2 in the descent of the Holy Spirit. It's not an Old Testament doctrine. That means that the first and second comings are sandwiched together in the Old Testament prophecies. Yes? And we'll, I've shown you this before and we'll, we'll uh, see it again. I don't want to bore you, uh, so I'm not going to bring it in now, but it's there in many of these great prophetic passages for example, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. After the, just write that down in your notes. Then after the service, you go and you pass out second coming truths from first coming truths, okay? I know we all sing it with, you know, along with Handel and Handel's Messiah, but it's not all applicable to right now. Some of it's second coming. In fact, most of it is. All right. Let's go to our third point, the second coming References. Verse 1, as we've said, Jesus will bring forth justice to the Gentiles, to the nations. So all of the nations of the earth will one day understand what justice is. And justice, this word mishpat, what it means is not just that uh, things will be fair and things will be adjudicated properly, it means that all of the things that justice brings, peace, harmony, tranquility, those things will be brought to. So Africa and China and all of those places in the world that know a great deal of animosity and pain and suffering they will be visited with justice. You see that? That's what the promise means. Let's not spiritualize it and make it less than it is. Let's believe it and hope for it and pray for it. We also so see second coming references in verses 3 and 4. Yes, verse 3, because... It says at the end of verse 3, he will bring forth justice for truth. And again, the same that was said at the end of verse 1 must be said at the end of verse 3. He hasn't done that yet, but he will. Justice must be introduced in order for truth to thrive. If there's no justice, then truth can't uh, can't. Uh, survive and can't flourish. But Jesus is the truth. Jesus is all about the truth. And so when he's present, he is going to bring forth justice in order for truth to reign. But verse 4 also continues this, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, which um, that word 
means all of the different lands that are away from Israel. Okay, it doesn't just mean the islands and so on. Shall wait for his law. And they're still waiting. They're still waiting, but it's coming. When he comes, his justice will come. How many times in this passage has Isaiah mentioned the justice of God? Yeah, several times, because without justice, you can't have anything else. If there's injustice, okay, nothing else can thrive. Peace can't thrive. Truth can't thrive. Uh, there's corruption, okay, so fairness and, and uh, congeniality and things like that, that can't thrive either. You've got to have justice, which is why justice has always been considered the queen of the virtues, okay? Because justice gives you the uh, environment in which you can have peace, in which you can have joy, in which love can, uh, can go about its business without being cut off. Man's inhumanity to man ends when justice permeates the world. Do you see? And this is what this servant will bring. He is, therefore, the one who uh, does extraordinary miracles like opening blind eyes. He's the one who does comfort people and not despise them. However they come to him, he accepts them. He's the one who does bring salvation. But he's the one who's going to bring justice. And with that, in the train of justice comes peace and joy and love and tranquility and all of these things that we expect from the kingdom that he will usher in. And and they're all going to come. They're all going to come. Why? Because God has made it all about him. He's put the responsibility for the renovation of this world and its ills, not upon your shoulders, not upon my shoulders, but upon the shoulders of somebody who actually can do something. Good grief. If he put it on the shoulders of the church, we would go on forever like this. Okay? We would. The church has some glorious times in its past, but even in those glorious times, there was injustice and there was petty squabbles and party spirit and there were, you know, people, one faction dealing harshly with another faction. That's human beings. That's us. We always mess it up. And so God, who's wise, is taking it out of the hands of us. Thank, thank you, Lord. And he's put it into the hands of one person. And he's going to make sure it comes about. I'm glad that it's off my shoulders. Okay? <clears throat> and I'm glad that it's off your shoulders too. Okay, because if it was down to you lot, 
then I wouldn't have any peace and justice. And if it was up to me, you wouldn't have any peace and justice, would you? It's not up to us. It's up to Christ. Christ, and this is the last thing, this is the thing I want to leave you with. Because he's the covenant Messiah, he takes the words of that covenant, that peace covenant, because actually the new covenant is called a covenant of peace, several times in the Old Testament. He takes that seriously. Therefore, he is under obligation as the covenant to do this. You can absolutely put all of your eggs in in one basket and believe this is not spiritualized language. This is not something that just is like a a few pink tea ditties that you make you feel better that things are never going to change. No, this is absolutely going to guarantee that things change because Christ takes the covenant seriously and the covenant brings peace and he's the prince of peace. Therefore, we can look forward to what? Yes, because we believe what God says, especially when he makes it in the covenant, do you see? And there you can have faith in that. You can depend on that. And therefore, you can go to a God who's promised these things. He's that kind of a God. So you can go to him in the way that he's told you to go to him, and he will respond to you as a loving father. This is a wonderful prophecy that makes the fulfillment, and we've got to do this another time, but all of those covenants down there, apart from that last one, they all depend on Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they'll never get fulfilled. They'll never get fulfilled. There's never going to be a, a, a Davidic king on the throne in Israel if the new covenant is not imposed by the one who is that covenant. Do you see? Israel's never going to get its land in fulfillment of Genesis 15. And, uh, you know, we're never going to get the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant that's coming to us unless Jesus brings it. Well, he's going to. He's going to. Because Jesus is the covenant. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to have faith in this. Because Jesus is that covenant you've made him a covenant, then, Lord, uh, what that covenant promises, which is salvation and restoration and redemption for the whole earth, will come about. And the same one, Lord, who brings that can also, Lord, bring us comfort, bring us hope. Help us, Lord, day by day as we go forward in this life, in this sojourn that we're on, until we join you in that kingdom. Thank you, Father. Help us to constantly have this truth in mind. In Jesus' name.